Well, I, I remember this Christmas in particular. I'll never forget it. I was, I was eight years old, and uh, there's only one thing I wanted for Christmas, and it was the G.I. Joe Command Center that came with the Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe. That's all I wanted. Now, this is not your kids' little tiny G.I. Joes. You guys remember the big G.I. Joes that we had? That's what I wanted. That's the only thing I wanted. There's a problem, though. We came from a family of, of, of eight people, seven siblings, two parents. That would be nine. So there's nine in our family. I lost count there. Um, not a lot of shekels to go around. So at Christmas time, we couldn't afford uh, these big ticket items like the G.I. Joe Command Center with the Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe. It came with it, guys. It came with it. But I was undeterred. I was going to make sure that I visited every single Santa Claus in our area to sit on his knee and tell him that I wanted the G.I. Joe Command Center that came with the Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe. I went and I wrote my Christmas list out for my parents. And I wrote over a hundred times the one item that I wanted. I went, do you guys remember getting the Sears catalog as kids and how excited you were at Christmas time and you tore it open and you looked through it and you made your list? I cut out the picture of the G.I. Joe command center that came with the G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. And I pasted it on a piece of paper. I went to my friends' houses, got their Sears catalogs, and cut the pictures out of there. And I posted them all over our house so that my parents knew I only wanted one thing. I promised I would eat all my vegetables. I'd do all my chores. I'd be a straight-A student. I'd be nice to my siblings. I'd do whatever they asked me to do. I just wanted one gift for Christmas the G.I. Joe Command Center that came with a Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe. It also came with a, with a boat that you could take into your bathtub and it went underwater. Like, it was really cool. Christmas morning comes. I was eight. You know, you know everything looks magical. The lights were on the tree. It was snowing outside. It looked like there's a million presents under the trees. Probably only eight presents. I was a kid. What do I know? <laughs> And I was just, oh, I couldn't wait. And it was a big gift. It was big. It was like this long, probably this high. It had a helicopter pad and everything. And I'm looking at the tree for a gift that big. And I couldn't see one, but that's okay. Maybe, I, you know, maybe it's behind the tree. So in our tradition, in our family, we sit in a circle. And one person goes under the tree, picks up a gift. Says who's it for. And they walk into that person. We all wait. They unwrap it. They take a picture. They smile. They say thank you. And then we go to the next person. Takes forever. Takes forever. Eight-year-old, not good at waiting, okay? So everyone's going around with their first present, and then it's my turn. I get my present, and I, I get it. It's not very big, and I, I unwrap it, and it's a, it's a single piece of licorice that's been wrapped. And I, thanks. <laughs> Take the picture. I'm like, no, what's going on here? I'm eight. What, why, why do I get a piece of licorice? I put it down. And I wait my turn again. Everyone goes around the circle. Comes back to me, open it up again. It's a different shape box this time, a little bigger. Open it up, inside, single piece of licorice. <laughs> Eight years old, thanks, mom and dad. Picture taken, good. Next gift comes around, socks, followed by underwear. Yeah, absolutely. And then licorice kept coming, socks and underwear. And then I got a box, and I opened it up, and it was full of you know, comic books, but all the covers had been ripped off the comic books. And I'm like, what? what? Am I on camera? Like, what's, what's going on here? And, I, you know, tears are starting to form in my corners of my eyes, and my, all my siblings are getting gifts that are, like, you know, pretty awesome. 
you know? And I'm thinking, why, why, why? There's only one thing I wanted. You know, nothing. We're done. No more presents. I'm like, this is the worst Christmas ever. You know, go have breakfast, you know? Eating her bacon and eggs and her toast. And I, and I just couldn't hold it back anymore. I'm eight years old. You know, the tears start rolling down my face. I'm like, this is the worst Christmas ever. And then my mom and dad just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't hold the grins in anymore. They started laughing. And then they go to the bedroom. And they pull out this big box. And it was the G.I. Joe Command Center that came with a Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe. It was awesome. <laughs> I'm not recommending you do that to your kids, parents. Okay, I'm not recommending that. But they knew that I was a terrible waiter. They knew I couldn't wait. And they just wanted to have some fun with me. Because no one likes to wait. Everyone is in a rush. We always go to the shortest checkout line in the store. We try to find the shortest line of cars at the, at the border crossing to go to Detroit. We dread going to the emergency room because we know it's going to take a long time to get seen. Bills come quickly in the mail, it seems, but those checks that we're waiting for take forever. And as a child, we can't wait to grow up and become a teenager so that we could have more responsibilities around the house. And then as a teen, we can't wait until we're an adult so we can do whatever we feel like doing. And as an adult, we can't wait until we can get married and have kids so that we can tell them what to do. When we have the flu, we can't wait to get better. When we're away from our loved ones, we can't wait to get home and see them again. When your son is away at college and you haven't seen him for a year, you can't wait to see him. And last night, for the last three days, I've barely had a few hours of sleep because my son, who I've not seen in ever, because he's away in Alberta College, he was coming home last night. Three hours, three and a half hours it took us to drive to London to pick him up in the snowstorm. Three and a half hours to get back, but it was worth the wait because my son is here for Christmas. Yes. You're almost as good as a G.I. Joe command center with a G.I. Joe Kung Fu Grill. <laughs> it's good to have him home. Nobody likes waiting in those long lines at Tim Hortons at the amusement park or at the licensing bureau to get your license renewed. We don't do waiting well. But imagine... If you were told you would have to wait hundreds of years to actually get what you were longing for, what you were hoping for, what you were waiting for. Because that was the situation for the nation of Israel. You know, it's interesting, the last lines of the Old Testament are found in a book called Malachi. And it's chapter 4. And the last verses of Malachi, the very last verses of the whole New Te Old Testament, it says this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. You see, at the end of Malachi, the Jewish nation, the people of Israel... We're waiting for the prophet Elijah to reappear, to show up again. Because he would be the forerunner of the promised coming Messiah. A Messiah that would comfort them. He, he would rescue them, redeem them as a people group, as a nation. And so when Malachi spoke, or he wrote these words, 
Many people thought Elijah would be appearing sooner than later. But days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. And months turned into years. 400 years, to be exact. Until the events of Matthew 1.18 happened. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So the promised Messiah was now born, and his name is Jesus. And so when Jesus became an adult, he reveals that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that Malachi prophecy at the end of the Old Testament. He says in Matthew 11, uh, verses 13 to 14, he says, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then again, he says it in Matthew 17, verses 10 to 13. He's, He's talking to his disciples, and he says, and they ask him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered to them and said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wanted. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So after waiting 400 years from the end of Malachi to the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel, the world in fact, finally receives their king, their Messiah. But you ever wondered what happened between the time of Malachi and the time of Matthew? What happened after the last of the inspired prophets spoke and the first of the New Testament writers began to write? Well, it's a period that historians like to call the 400 years of silence because we have no new revelation from God. We only have seemingly silence and waiting and hoping on the part of Israel. So historically, let me share with you really quickly, historically, what did happen between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And I'm quoting from a, from a great book called The 400 Years of Silence. And I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs for you. It says this, At the close of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is back again in the land of Palestine after the Babylonian captivity. But they are under the domination of the great world power of that day, the Persian Empire. In Jerusalem, the temple has been restored, although it isn't, it's a much smaller building than the one Solomon had built. Within the temple, the line of the Aaronic priesthood was still worshiping and carrying on the sacred rites as they had been ordered to do by the law of Moses. There was a direct line of descendancy in the priesthood that could be traced back to Aaron. But the royal line of David had fallen on evil days. The people knew who the rightful successor to David was. And in the book of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, his name is given to us. It was Zerubbabel, the royal prince. Yet, there was no king on the throne for Israel. They were a puppet nation under the domination of the Persian Empire. Nevertheless, although they were beset with weakness and formalism, as the prophets have shown us, the people, the Jewish nation, were united. There were no political schisms, no factions among them, nor were they divided into groups or parties. 
they were whole once again by the time the end of Malachi. But then Israel was attacked. They were attacked by the Persian Empire, and they were defeated, becoming part of the unholy empire that was the Persian Empire. And then after another battle where Egypt defeated the Persians, the Egyptians annexed Israel. And then Israel was caught in a never-ending conflict between Syria and Egypt, not unlike today. The Greek culture, which was rampant in that part of the world at this time, was slowly invading the Jewish faith, eroding their belief of one God. Jerusalem was captured away from Egypt by the Syrians. And a Syrian leader, a dictator by the name of Antiochus, he kicked out the high priest of the temple. He defiled the temple by destroying all the scrolls of the law he could find. He was offering unclean sacrifices on the holy altar, and he was doing unspeakable things in the Holy of Holies. It took the Jewish people six and a half years to cleanse the temple from his desecration. They couldn't worship in the temple for six and a half years because of what Antiochus did. Jerusalem was constantly under attack by a warring nation and its people being slaughtered on a daily basis. The Roman Empire defeated the Syrians and wrestled control of Jerusalem away from them. And then finally, Herod the Great was installed as the new leader over Israel. So what happened between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew? The Jewish people had gone through times of intense pressure, pain, and hardship. They failed in their efforts to reestablish themselves as a nation. They had given up all hope because for 400 years, all they got from God was seemingly silence. There was a growing air of expectancy, though, that the only hope that they had amidst all of this silence was the coming at last of that promised Messiah. So what happened between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew? The Jewish people were waiting. They were hoping, with God seemingly being silent. And they were growing impatient. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been waiting for something. You've been hoping for something. It may not be as something as simple as waiting for your son or daughter to return. Something a little bit more deeper, a little bit more serious. It could be a health issue. It could be a financial issue. It could be a, t- a family torn apart. And maybe you've been waiting for days or weeks or months or years and there's been a seemingly air of silence from God. And perhaps you're growing impatient with God over his silence. Not unlike the prophet Elijah, who as recorded in 1 Kings 1993, 9-13, he was also growing very impatient with God. In fact, he was growing very upset and depressed over God's silence in his life. In the face of great personal danger. It says this, Then there he went into a cave, Elijah went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing in here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, God. 
And now they're trying to kill me too. And up to that point, God had remained very silent in Elijah's life. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass you by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. But he was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard the whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. You know, waiting for a G.I. Joe command center Christmas morning uh, is hard for an eight-year-old to do. But I think waiting for God to speak and act in our lives is an even harder ask to make for us today. It's hard to wait and to hope for something from God in the midst of absolute silence. Because we don't do waiting well. We lose hope in the face of silence. Well, at least I do. And I'm just assuming that you do as well. Especially when we allow the roar of the winds and the earthquakes and the fires of life to cause us to lose hope. It's hard enough to to wait, let alone wait while the storms of life are battering against us. So let me ask you this morning, what are you waiting for from God? In your hearts of hearts, what are you hoping God is going to do for you, in you, and through you? What are your needs this morning? Spiritual, physical, emotional. What kind of prayers have you been offering up to your God? And maybe it feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceilings because it doesn't sound or seem like you're getting any answers from God. What are your storms? What are your earthquakes? What are your fires? In Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, verses 25 to 40, we come across two, Christian, sorry, two Christmas characters that never seem to make it onto Christmas cards. They never seem to make it into our Christmas pageants, and nor do they ever get shown in the nativity scenes. But they're two people who are very much like you. They were waiting. They were waiting in the midst of silence from God. Two people, though, who haven't lost hope in the midst of silence from God. Two people who haven't lost hope in the midst of the storms of life in the silence of God. And those two people were named Simeon and Anna. Both are found in the temple when Joseph and Mary go to Jerusalem when they take Jesus there to be consecrated to the Lord. And both Simeon and Anna were in the temple for a reason. They were waiting for something. They were waiting for someone. And Luke, the author of these passages, he uses a Greek word for for the word waiting that literally means alert and ready to welcome. So Simeon and Anna were in the temple that day that Jesus came to be presented and, and consecrated before the Lord. They were alert and they were ready to welcome. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 23. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon 
who was righteous and devout. He, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and glory, and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Getting a lot of bang in there. Not sure what's going on. Simeon was alert and ready to welcome Jesus. He was promised by God that he would one day see the consolation of Israel. That's another way of saying he will see the comforter of Israel. And so Simeon went to the temple every day in hope of seeing this person, this comforter, a person that would bring great comfort to the Jewish nation. Now remember, things aren't going particularly well for Israel at this time. They hadn't heard from God for 400 years almost. They were under Roman rule and domination. They had lost their political independence. They were living in fear of that cruel King Herod. And many were wondering if the Messiah would ever come, but not Simeon. He had hope in the midst of the silence of the storms. But his hope was based on a promise. A promise from God that Simeon would live to see the comforter with his own eyes. And Simeon lived with that silence until the day Jesus was brought into the temple. And he recognized Jesus as being the comforter. And what did he do? He rejoiced. He rejoiced. Verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Anna was alert and ready to welcome Jesus. After her husband had died, she had dedicated herself to fasting and praying in the temple. She never left the temple, but worshipped there day and night. She was looking forward to the same person Simeon was looking for, but for a different reason. Instead of looking for comfort, Anna was looking for redemption. She was looking to be rescued. Remember verse 38. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, remember, Israel was constantly in and out of captivity at the hands of many nations. They were longing to be rescued. They were longing to be saved, to be redeemed. Bought out of that captivity, if you will. 
And so Anna waited in hope in the midst of silence for the promised Messiah to come and redeem her and her people. And her hope, like Simeon's hope, was based on a promise. A promise that God gave to Abraham thousands of years earlier that his descendants would always remain and be the people of God. So despite the pain, despite the torment and the captivity, Anna knew that her Redeemer was coming. And she got to see her Redeemer when Jesus was brought into the temple. And when she saw the Redeemer, then she rejoiced. So Simeon, he was waiting for comfort. Anna was waiting for redemption, to be rescued. Can I ask you again, this morning, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for God to comfort you? Are you in need of the touch of God? Are you begging Him daily with your prayers, Lord, relieve from me these things that are happening? Are you looking to be rescued by God, to be saved by Him, to be taken out of a horrible situation and put into a better one? Is that your prayer? What are you waiting for? Seemingly in silence. Are you in pain? Deep distress? Battling sorrow and grief? Maybe you're confused, you're you're lost, you're distracted, seemingly wandering spiritually. Maybe you're nervous or, or, or you're worried. Maybe some of you are scared. Are you waiting for comfort? Or are you waiting for redemption to be rescued? Are you confused by the seemingly silence of God? Remember what Elijah experienced. God was not in his disasters. He was not in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. And he wasn't in the fire. So my people, he's not in your pain. He's not in your worry. He's not in your fears. He is that small, still voice that can only be heard by sitting and embracing the silence and waiting in hope. For the truth of the matter is, God has never been silent. Man can call those 400 years, 400 years of silence, all he wants. But you and I know the truth of the matter is God is never silenced. Even though it seems like he's very silent, he's not. He's always that small, still voice that if, we're, that if we stay silent, we can hear him. He's left us his holy word, which we are to draw comfort from reading. A word that many people have tried to destroy throughout generations, but still has remained. We have prayer, which we use to speak to God and share all of our disasters with. And he's a God who hears us. And we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Don't miss this. We have God in us. Those of us who have asked God to be our Lord and Savior. We have God in us through the Holy Spirit. And he leads us. And he guides us. Jesus provides to us everything that we need. He is not silent. He may not be in your pain, but he can relieve your pain. He is not in your worry, but he can bring peace to your soul. 
He is not in your fear, but he will come and comfort you. And you can trust that he will. Even if you seemingly can't hear him. Because you can base it on a promise. Just like Simeon based his hope on a promise. Like Anna based her hope on a promise. Like Israel based their hope on a promise. You can base your hope on a promise. Scripture is full of many, many promises to us, but this is the one I'm sharing this morning. It comes from Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So when you pass through the waters, I will be right there with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is the promise that God has given to each one of us. So in the silence, as you're waiting, as you're hoping, remember that promise. He's with you. He's not going to leave you. He's a great plan for your life. It just not, might not be the plan that you have for your life. The answer to your prayers might not be exactly the way you want them answered. His idea of how he's going to rescue you may be completely different from how you think you ought to be rescued. And maybe that's why it seems like there's silence, because you're not hearing what you want to hear. But if you would like to experience God's comfort and his redemption, you need to trust his promises. And hold to them as truth. And you can do so by marveling. By marveling at all the amazing things he's already done in your life. Don't focus on all of your disasters that are going on around you. You focus on the disasters, you will lose your way. Yes, you can't hide from your disasters, but acknowledge them, they're real. Acknowledge them, but don't focus on them. Instead, focus on what he has already done for you. Focus by looking back on how he has rescued you from past disasters. Thank him for all the wonderful things he's done for you. Look back and remember how God has already comforted and redeemed you throughout the years. And then God wants you to move. He wants you to move. Elijah had to move out of the cave to hear God. Simeon was moved by the Spirit to go into the temple courts to find Jesus. Anna was moved to live in the temple day and night so she could find Jesus. Mary and Joseph were moved by an angel to accept the miracle pregnancy. The shepherds were moved to go and worship a baby Christ. The wise men were moved to follow a star to find the King of Kings. Even though you might not hear God, he is asking you to move to something. He's asking you to surrender. He's asking you to forgive. He's asking you to serve. 
He's asking you to love in the midst of all your disaster. He's asking you to move. And as you move, you may be able to hear what God is saying to you. And then he wants you to be a messenger, which I think is probably the hardest of them all. Despite Elijah's life being on the line, God wanted him to be his messenger. Anna, after giving thanks to God, spoke to all about this child. The shepherds were told to spread the word of what they had just seen. So while you are looking for comfort from God, God wants you to go and bring comfort to others. While you needed to be rescued, and you're waiting to be rescued, he wants you to go and help rescue people. So out of your pain, he wants you to be used by him to go help and relieve pain out of others. And in the process, learn something about yourself. Listen to God speak to you through your actions and through what you bring to other people. God wants each of us to become his messengers of grace, of mercy, and forgiveness. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The promise that Israel was waiting for was the Messiah. But the Messiah they had in mind was a completely different Messiah than what they got. They wanted a warrior. They wanted someone on the back of a horse with a sword who would come and wipe out the Romans. But that's not who Jesus was. Elijah was looking for a different answer from God. Anna and Simeon, you can bet, were not expecting to find a baby as their answer to what they were hoping for. And my brothers and my sisters, please, while you're hoping and while you're waiting, God will answer you. It just might not be in the way that you expect. Let me close with this illustration. We're pastoring in Medicine Hat. One of our goals as a church was to to reach out into our community, and um, we wanted to really impact our community in a very specific way. We wanted to open up our doors and let um, the, the ghetto people of society, if you will, come into our church building. And it was a big step for our proud German men and women of our church to rub shoulders with other men and women who smoked and drank didn't smell particularly nice, and were involved with vices that we would definitely be frowning upon. And we invited them in, and we held service for them, and we wanted to share the love of Jesus with them. And that was our prayer. Our prayer was, Lord, bring these people in so we could teach them about Jesus. And then one Sunday, family came. Young couple, four kids. Five kids, four kids. And they came to the church. It wasn't what you call a traditional family, if you get my meaning. There's two moms, both from broken families, children from different husbands, and, and they were living together. And they were a non-traditional family living in our neighborhood, and they came to our Sunday morning church service. I'm just going to be very transparent with you folks. I was not comfortable, and neither were our people. And as they came and, and, and literally asked permission to attend the services, um, I heard that small, still voice say, Frank, this is the answer to your prayer. 
It's, it's people like this who I'll be bringing. So you need to love them. It was difficult. Uh, we made sure they understood that they may be hearing things from this pulpit that would uh, cause them to be very uncomfortable and maybe even become angry because of what we're preaching, of what we believe to be true in God's word. Um, but they wanted to stay because they believed they needed to be in a house of worship. So they attended for a while, and, and you know, I'll be honest, some of our people left over it. Those who stayed were committed to loving people like this, people in need, people who did not have Jesus. Then I preached a message. It was an altar call message. I called for the altar call to happen. First person up was one of these ladies. And I, I, again, if I could be transparent and honest, the first thought in my mind was, Lord, I didn't mean her. Because now this is going to get very difficult and very messy. Messy spirituality. So, we sat with her. We walked her through the steps of salvation. She knew what she wanted. She knew what she needed. She knew what she didn't have. She knew what, that she needed Jesus. She accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. But what do you do now? She's living in a family unit, a very non-traditional family unit. She has children that she loves. She has a, another person that she cares about in her life very deeply. Do I ask her to now leave that house? We continue to pray and walk with this lady. And over time, there became conflict in the home uh, because the Holy Spirit was working on this girl. Her name was Tammy. And then one Sunday, or one, one day of the week, she came to the office and she said, Pastor Frank, um, I really believe that God has been telling me I need to, uh, to move out of uh, my home and away from the situation. It's a hallelujah moment. That's the Holy Spirit working. So I was overjoyed. I won't go into too much more detail except for you to say this. Um, there's a lot of conflict as she tried to leave that situation, that lifestyle. Um, she was trying to follow the commands of God in her life. And she ended up, ended up passing away. And she died. Then we had to track down her family. And so we searched high and low. She had not had contact with her family for over 20 years. We finally were able to find her family through some friends, got a hold of them, told the mom and dad what had happened. They lived in Texas. They had not seen Tammy in over 20 years. Lost contact. So we told them what happened. They said, will you, Pastor, will you do the service? We'll come up. I said, I'll do the service. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll be difficult, but we'll do it. So up they came. I didn't actually physically meet them until that morning of the funeral. Let me tell you, the whole non-traditional lifestyle community was in our church. Our church was packed with non-traditional lifestyle people. And a few of our faithful saints who were there in the back just praying. And I met the, husband, I met the father and I met the, the wife. And they're, they're, they're just in tears, of course. And I'm talking to them. And he looked at me, and I'm trying to explain what, what happened. And, and he, he stopped me. He says, Pastor, he says, no, no, no. He says, let me explain. We have been praying for our daughter since she was born. We haven't seen her for 20 years. When she left, she's never, she, our prayers have never stopped. Uh, we raised her in a Christian home. Uh, we're in ministry full-time in Texas. He's, he's a Baptist pastor. His wife is the leader of the choir in that church. And he said, we've been praying nonstop that Tammy would receive Jesus and come back into the fold. And so we were very thankful 
that she came here and, and accept Jesus. And then the, the wife, the mom, said, but to be honest with you, this was not what we were praying for. We were not praying for our daughter to have to die in order to get to the point of receiving Jesus. But they were content. And, 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 and they were okay with it. So here was a couple who'd been praying for 20 years for the soul of their daughter, never to see her again, and the next time they see her, she's lying in a coffin. Yet they're praising and rejoicing with God because their prayer was answered. Their daughter was saved. So you got hopes. You got needs. And you're waiting. And it seems like God is silent. But please understand, he's working. He's doing stuff. It just not be, might not be doing it the way you want to see it done. Preached a funeral. Very awkward. Um, many people came to know the Lord that day. Few through that funeral. God knew what he was doing when he brought that couple into our church. God knows what he's doing in your life. He's not silent. Just wait. Wait in hope on the promise that God has given you that he's got it all under control. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you're the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Messiah. We are but your creation here to serve and worship you. Help us in our times of need to trust you to hold on to those promises that you have given us. Forgive us of our doubts. Help us to, to marvel at what you've already done. Help us to move into, into new areas and, and to, to do things that you would ask us to do. And help us to be a messenger to the world that are hurting just as much as we are. And Lord, I just pray that you would touch each person here, that they would be able to move out of their cave of sorrow and go to the mouth of that cave and that they would hear your small, still voice today just as a sign of encouragement for them. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we do pray. Amen.